The Hatch Act prohibits political activities by federal employees on the job. It only applies, though, to executive branch agencies. When the head of the administrative office of the U.S. courts enacted new rules for that agency's employees that went even further than the Hatch Act, not everyone was on board. Two employees filed a lawsuit. Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with one of the attorneys involved. He's legal director for the D.C. chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, Art Spitzer. It's an agency of about 1,100 employees, part of the judicial branch of government. And so it's not covered by the Hatch Act, which covers hundreds of thousands or millions of uh, executive branch employees around the country. So the judiciary has its own rules about political activity. Uh, It has some very strict rules that apply to judges themselves and their law clerks who assist them in in signing cases. But these employees at the administrative office who mostly perform back office kinds of work, they, they help the judiciary with its technology, with its budget, with its building plans, um, all kinds of stuff like that. They had a a fairly or relatively relaxed set of rules about political participation that was more or less similar to the Hatch Act. But in 2018, a new director of the administrative office decided that there ought to be stricter rules in, in a whole variety of ways, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but one employee of the administrative office, uh, a, a lawyer there who uh, had been there uh, since 2010 and was a, a, a Navy veteran and had had previous government jobs where she was subject to the Hatch Act uh, and, and had no complaints about that, she got in touch with us and she said, here are these new rules that will prohibit me from doing things I've been doing for many years as a government employee, and, and I think it's wrong. Someone else um, uh, eventually joined with her. So the, the, the lead plaintiff's name is Lisa Guffey. And Christine Smith, uh, who's an IT expert um, and who had previously worked for years at a very high level in the Department of Defense doing IT work with a top secret clearance and subject to the Hatch Act, also joined as a plaintiff because she was now being told she couldn't do things that she had always been able to do. So there are two employees that have, like you said, very familiar with the Hatch Act. They know where the appropriate level of political participation and where the lines probably should be drawn, even if the Hatch Act doesn't apply to them. So what kinds of political activities was this new code of conduct prohibiting uh, administrative court employees from participating in? Right. So, So there were nine categories. And I'll just run through them. Number one was expressing political opinions in public, including on social media or in letters to the editor. Number two was wearing political buttons or displaying signs on, like on your front lawn or your uh, bumper sticker on your car. Number three was driving voters to the polls on behalf of a party or a candidate. Number four was contributing funds, no matter how small, any amount, to a political party or or candidate or action committee. Number uh, five was attending partisan fundraisers. Uh, Number six was being a member of a political organization other than just registering as a member of a party so you could vote in the primary. Number seven was attending events. Uh, for a partisan candidate for office. So if you just wanted to go hear a candidate speak at a public event, you couldn't do that. Number eight was organizing events for a partisan candidate. And number nine was attending party conventions or rallies or meetings. So really, 
it pretty much covered the waterfront. There was hardly anything you could do other than vote. So we filed this case in, in May of 2018. We got a preliminary injunction from the district judge and then continued litigating the case to a final decision in April of 2020. And the judge ruled that seven of those nine categories were improper and issued an injunction allowing all employees at the administrative office to engage in them. The two where he felt the government had made a, a reasonable case to prohibit were uh, driving voters to the polls on behalf of a party or a partisan candidate because he said someone might see you doing that and realize that you were engaged in a partisan activity and organizing events. Similarly, if you were the organizer of an event, he thought maybe that went too far. So that was his decision. The government appealed. Uh, they, they were not happy with that. And, and as it went to the Court of Appeals, which, as you point out, decided it last week, decided it on August 16th. It was a panel of three judges. The opinion was written by Judge Walker, who's actually a Trump appointee. We were glad to see that he agreed with us in this, in this case. And the Court of Appeals uh, struck down all nine. They, they didn't see any significant difference between them. They said the, the, the administrative office uh, hadn't, they didn't have a valid reason for prohibiting any of these activities. Their reasons were all based on speculation about uh, what people might think if they, number one, knew that these people were employees of the administrative office of the courts, if they even knew what the administrative office of the courts is, because most people never heard of it. How would they know that someone who they saw at a rally or someone whose house had a lawn sign in front was an employee of the administrative office? Uh, so it was all just speculative, said the Court of Appeals, and struck them all down. They did, for uh, technical reasons, limit the injunction to the two plaintiffs. So strictly speaking, only our two plaintiffs are now free to do all these two things. Now, the administrative office has several choices at this point. They could ask the entire court, rather than just a panel of three judges, they could ask the whole court to rehear the case. That's one possibility. They could ask the Supreme Court to review the case. That's another possibility. Um, we're hoping they won't do either of those things, but they've got 45 days to seek rehearing. They've got 90 days to ask the Supreme Court to review, so we won't really know till more or less the end of the year. And they could say, all right, Ms. Guffey and Ms. Smith, you can do what you want, and the other 1,099, more or less, still have to obey the old rules, in which case we'd have to bring a new lawsuit. Uh, and, and presumably we'd bring it as a class action. But um, we are optimistic that they'll accept this decision and that they'll agree that the same rules should apply to all of their employees. With the exception, there's a small category of the very top level of supervisors at the administrative office that, have a, that are in a different category and have different rules. And we didn't challenge the rules as to those, I think, six top employees. Yeah, I'm curious if the judges, uh, you, you mentioned that they just threw out those nine rules. Did they mention anything about the actual authority of the uppers that you just mentioned at the Administrative Court of the United States? Do they have the authority to do this to their employees? Uh, did the judges mention anything about that? You know, can they could they issue other rules if they wanted to? They could. And, and we didn't challenge that. The the um, the administrative office 
uh, can make rules for the conduct of its employees. They can make rules about, you know, do they have to wear a shirt and tie? Do they have to show up for work at nine o'clock? Can they work from home? Any agency, I guess, has a certain amount of authority to make rules for its employees. And 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 uh, and there and there have been rules all along. They've just not been so crazy as these. So so we didn't say you can't make any rules. Um, we just said your rules have to be constitutional. Uh, and and we thought these crossed the line uh, to being a violation of of the employees' rights under the First Amendment. Art Spitzer is legal director of the Washington D.C. chapter of the ACLU, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr- um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. 
There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think it would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. 
other times I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.